Welcome to episode 155, Setting, Keeping, and Changing Boundaries in Private Practice, Values, Attunement, and Impact on Outcome, featuring Kelly Higdon, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and I am excited today to be joined by Kelly Higdon. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist, and her jam is really supporting therapists in making ethical choices relating to business practices. And today she's here to join us to have a conversation about boundaries. And I think this is a topic that is really sometimes difficult for clinicians, that we are people people and the business side of things uh, sometimes really intimidates us. So thank you for joining us and, and having this conversation, Kelly. Thanks for having me. Uh, why don't you take a moment and tell us about your work and how you came to really specialize in this area of the business side of private practice and the law and ethics and all of that? Yeah, well, I'm a therapist first. I used to work in county mental health and mental health hospitals. And through my own burnout in those kind of positions, I chose private practice as my last ditch effort for this field (laughs) before I was going to go back to school. And I built a private practice. I've sold the assets of that practice. And along the way, um, I partnered with Miranda and we developed Zinimi and really an effort to teach people how to run their businesses more easily. However, through that beginning, we saw just how much uh, lack of empowerment there is on the clinical side. You know, you go to school, you have your internship, and then we're in an isolated work, right? No one's in, no one's seeing our work. No one's sitting in with us in session. No one is uh, really aware of what we're doing per se, like in other positions and other kind of fields. And because of that, um, I think that people have always thought, well, business is over here on this side and I got to do marketing and things like that. And then I have my clinical life over here and we compartmentalize and that isolation kind of leads to feeling like an imposter. I don't know. How do we know we're really doing good work? And when we compartmentalize those two things, we don't see the impact and the shared um, relationship between the business and our clinical relationships. And so people are very disempowered. If you're disempowered in business, I often find that there's something happening clinically as well in the work and vice versa. So um, we've been integrating and I, that more and more in our work together. And I would say that as coaches, that's where we stand out is we aren't focused just on how do I get the phone ringing? that is important. But at the root of that is, how do I get great clinical outcomes while sustaining a livable wage, a good income so that I'm taken care of and my clients are taken care of? I remember reading a quote years ago that said something to the effect of um, resentment is a sign that boundaries have been crossed. Mm. And I've had conversations as a supervisor before with supervisees about the difficulty with setting boundaries around start and end time of sessions, around someone arriving late, around fee setting, all of these different things. And that eventually, I think 
I, you know, speaking for myself, I know I found myself in a situation where I've said yes to something and then it starts to feel wiggly. It starts to feel like I shouldn't have said yes. Like now something feels exploitative. Now I feel like I have to walk it back. And mm-hmm. I would assume many other clinicians have been in that position where where we sometimes learn boundaries about certain issues the hard ways because we've said yes to something and then we're we're trying to walk it back. And and to your point about clinical outcomes, we develop this we have the potential to develop resentment to the client because we feel like we're not being paid enough or we stayed late that one time and now they expect it every time or whatever it is. And for me, how could that not impact the clinical work when we are actively resentful of a client? Um, that That's not going to help us <laughs> with, with unconditional positive regard. <laughs> right. And it actually has been proven to impact the therapeutic relationship, then it also compounds with burnout. It's an ethical issue, the burnout that we're seeing in our field. And there's research on that in terms of how it it is linked to poor mental health outcomes for clinicians when you have burnout. Burnout starts with a lack of boundaries in the business. Burnout is connected to the the systemic issues within the business, right? So when there's a lack of boundary, the burnout creeps up and then that impacts the clinical outcomes. And it can also, it does also, I would say, impact the mental health of the clinician as well. And so that then what happens is as that burnout increases, then those boundaries continue to weaken. And then the standards of professional practice get more nebulous and the boundaries are way more permeable for sure. Thank you for bringing up that point. And I've also seen research that has suggested that when clinicians have undertreated or underdiagnosed mental health conditions themselves, they have poor outcomes therapeutically. And so I think it also speaks to that point that, I mean, as you and I record this, we're in January of 2022, our world has been upside down for two years, just related to the pandemic, let alone what's been going on in in personal lives and financial hardship. And so much has happened societally and politically. Um, Mm -hmm. Burnout, I think, has to be part of this conversation. Um, So as we, let's start, by backtracking a little bit, tell me what a boundary is to you. How do you define that? It's something you spent a lot of time trying to understand and conceptualize in your role. What does it mean? A boundary is how do we define the relationship and the terms that we agree upon to operate within this relationship? Because it's setting up, telling a person, here's the expectation. This is what I am committing to do. And this is what I ask of you. It's interesting as we're talking about the boundary piece and how the resentment creeps up, there's a misalignment between what we are telling our clients because we would tell our clients to have boundaries. And then when we don't, and then we feel like we can't change, would you ever in a session tell your client, well, you said that that's what you, you said yes. So you can't go back. Yeah. And it's funny. That's that, that, that's that misalignment between what you will do for others and not for yourself. Because you've got to think of your business. If you think about it in terms of parts work, it's a part of you. It's an extension, a representation of you. And so if this part of you 
the clinician part is saying, yes, you can change your mind. And yes, we can learn from these things. And yes, our boundaries change based on our own needs. But then this other part of you in your business is saying, oh, no, I can't. That is, that's that root of that resentment. I think in this conversation about boundaries, one thing that I had had a conversation um, with my own former supervisor about years ago was just the concept of informed consent. And I think it's really come to light, particularly in the last couple of years, as we've seen values differences between clients and therapists, for example. But the idea that informed consent is a mutual process. It's not Correct. something that is is one way that the client consents to something. And I appreciated my former supervisor in bringing up this point because we have to appreciate ourselves as holding space in the relationship and that informed consent is mutual. So if someone has values that are so severely misaligned with ours that we feel like our clinical work is impacted, then we are no longer participating in informed consent. Mm-hmm. We're consenting potentially without even conceptualizing, am I actually agreeing to this? Um, and and I, I think that's part of the equation as well with boundaries is reflecting on, like you said, the values alignment. And that informed consent is just another way to express those boundaries. However, those boundaries are reinforced in our words, our language, our interventions, our follow through. And it's an ongoing discussion. Um, and it is part of the clinical work. It is not a document that is just a legal requirement. This is setting the frame and there is therapeutic purpose in it, you know, and we would even argue that the informed consent process starts before they become a client through your marketing, through, you know, how you discuss your work. Do you really know the average length of treatment for your clients? Why are we not looking at that? You know, and why do we have so many so much shame and judgment around like too short, too long, all these kinds of things. It's really more to understand how you work so that you can discuss that with a client so that you can prepare them and be honest and real about like, here's the common, this is not promising anything, but most people stay with me about a year. Most people stay with me two years. Most people stay with me three to six months. We're all different. But that informed consent, again, that mutual allows the client to make further decision. Mm-hmm. It empowers them with information so they can say, is this going to work for me or not? And that can change at any point along the way in the therapeutic relationship as well. In your role, having worked with so many clinicians, led so many trainings and opportunities for clinicians on this topic, what are some of the primary points where you feel, where you've seen that our boundaries, as I say, get wiggly? That that, yeah. it, it, that that we have that potential for a values misalignment and may find ourselves feeling like um, we're resentful. Yeah, I would say definitely time. And that ranges from length of session to frequency of session. Um, the fee is another area that's a hot topic. And there is research around that as well, even in like psychoanalysis and the fee being part of the therapeutic transaction and how that needs to be looked at. Um, and I would say even niche. I know that may sound strange to people, um, but Um, I really do believe that there is value in knowing who you do good work with and referring out, especially right now. I, I, 
as you said, this time that we're in, a lot of people are not referring out. They're taking everybody because there's such a demand. And I think that that can lead to resentment as well. Um, so, you know, time management, financial kind of things. And then I would, any kind of policy, the reinforcement and follow through is a struggle for a lot of therapists too. One that I've seen a lot on social media is a difficulty about cancellation policies. I mean, all the things yeah. that you just brought, but, yeah. but I, but I want us to talk about these because I think for so many clinicians, it's really uncomfortable. And that's why we see these topics come up in social media forums all the time for therapists about, well, this client was late. And so I left early or whatever it is. And then what do I do about it? And so often my observation is that these issues are absolutely about boundaries. You know, or what do I do when I've said, okay, we're about out of time and it's a 50 minute hour and it's 58 minutes into the hour and they're still talking and haven't taken a breath yet. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I see these kind of questions come up. Um, you've mentioned the impact on outcomes and kind of values alignment and boundaries. Can you speak more about that in what happens when, when our frame is too flexible or too malleable? Yeah. Well, imagine any kind of relationship that you might be in when you don't understand what the relationship is about. You've seen this like in dating relationships, right? Are we dating? Are we exclusive? What's going on here? You know, it leads to confusion and it creates a misattunement. So if you look at super strengths in the work of Scott Miller, a lot of it is about attunement, right? We're in the one field that the longer we do this work, we get worse. And that when we are, um, what is the outcome is the attunement. And in order to have attunement with our clients, that has to have an alignment and follow through with what we say and what we do. And you can't, so in, there's this concept and analysis called the psychic third. It's this relationship that it's this third element in the room that is co-created by you and the client that exists. Right. And so it's this aspect of what are you creating together? And it exists in its truest form that the client can pick up on things too. Don't think that you're hiding. The attunement is an energetic exchange in this like kind of psychic third element of you say, oh yeah, that's fine. But your resentment will come up just like in a dating relationship, your ambivalence comes up. That resentment is going to come up and you may think that you're really good at, at hiding that. But eventually, if you're working on that attunement, that client is going to feel it. And that's going to impact, you know, the therapeutic relationship, the, the transference and counter-transference that's happening in the session. All of the boundaries that have been broken are part of that. I'm smiling as you bring that up. How I've discussed it with supervisees and with clients is the space in between us, the space in between client and therapist yeah. in this discussion about power dynamics and fee setting. And when, you know, typically there are some clinicians, for example, that say, um, I see you at 4 p.m. on Tuesdays and that is our spot. And then there are other clinicians that it's, oh, well, I have a spot at this time or I have a spot at this time next week or two weeks down the road or whatever it is. And those are personal choices for various reasons. But those are still session times that are set by the clinician. Just that is a power dynamic, not even to mention when the session starts. You know, so if we start on time or we start 
seven minutes late, what does that seven minutes mean to the client? Because they were paying for that time. So do we stay seven minutes late? Does it make us late for other clients? All of these things are part of these values considerations and, and, and boundary issues. But it all becomes in the space between clients and therapists. Yes. And if we're looking at the microcosm and macrocosm of what we're doing in the room being reflective of what's happening out in the world, real world, how do we empower a client to have their needs met in our relationship so that they can use that same assertiveness with a boss, with a partner, with a neighbor, with whoever it is? You know, power is not a bad thing. It's when it's not used to lift up others. You know, it's when it's used for oppression, not good. When it's used to empower and hold, the way I see it is like, elevate kind of like bringing people to like a better way and for me i was the clinician that said hey this is your appointment every week and the reason i did that was because for me it was easier to plan my caseload but really it was because i knew that i could say to this client i have thought of you and that way we're consistent and i'm not jerking you around and you're not left wondering if you're going to get another appointment so it was sort of like easier for me and really in terms of respecting their time now that may not have worked for some of my clients because they were shift workers and things like that so then we would have these discussions of what would it mean for you to commit to something like that in the midst of having shift work and things like that unexpectedly come up and you know, how do you prioritize you in the midst of that? It was, an, again, another metaphor of, well, how do I take care of me in the midst of this other thing where I'm taking care of other people? It was just a lot of rich therapeutic content. Mm -hmm. And we miss those things. We miss those opportunities um, when we don't lean into the discomfort. Um, and that is a lot of what people are experiencing in their life already. They don't need a replication of that with us. Our relationship is a, by it being therapeutic means it's a corrective experience in a relationship, meaning they are getting feedback, needs, boundaries in a way that they never have gotten before. You know, to give them experience of what attunement feels like, what it means to be cared for, you know? And if we don't lean into the discomfort, we're creating a fairy tale. And that does no service to the client. Because in what world do you enter into a relationship where only one person says how everything goes and everything just works out? Change is constant. And if we don't own up to the things we need to change, then we are creating unrealistic expectations for our clients after they're done with treatment with us that other relationships never change. It's just unreal. And that is a disservice. In what you just said, I can see, I, and I have seen relationships where only one person's needs are met, one party's needs are met, and they're unhealthy. And, <laughs> yeah. and so, you know, at some point, somebody becomes so exploited, so resentful, and, and that can open up into another conversation about power dynamics and replication of themes from childhood. And there are cultural considerations, socioeconomic ones. but. But fundamentally, for us as clinicians wanting to give that corrective action, I think I think where it crashes into, I guess, complexity is when we try to explain what it means to be therapeutic 
And that that word, I think, means different things to different clinicians. And that so many, like if we look at the research about highly sensitive people, for example, highly sensitive people, so individuals who have sensory processing sensitivity are more likely to go into people facing professions to be doctors, to be teachers, to be clinicians. And we tend to be really conscientious and thoughtful and empathic. And that also can be a, a downfall because we, we are trying to nurture somebody. And I think sometimes it can feel like nurturance is in competition with boundaries. How do you feel about that concept? And how do you see that when you see clinicians having trouble with asking for payment during session or setting the fees or letting them know about a fee increase or a change in policy. It's interesting, right? It's that highly, that HSP kind of what you're talking about is in service of the other. And yet the advantage to the HSP is they have a gift of attunement to themselves as well, that they should be highly attuned to their own process and their own like what their body's telling them and things like that. And if they are tuned to both in tandem, I think that that allows for more flexibility, which is the gift of that empath versus the person who does it in service of the other at the expense of the self and denial of the self. That's when you run into issues. Because if you look at like uh, Kotler talks about in terms of clients as our teachers, the argument isn't that boundary crossings are a bad thing that we will have them, but it allows for us to learn where we can be flexible um, and how challenge is part of this relationship. And it is a good thing. And again, it's not that you can't use, I, it's not a rigid thing. So when someone's like, well, this was the, this is the boundary I set and then we get mired in all of these exceptions. I think we're losing our embodiment, much like the HSP person can really have to tune into what what are we feeling like. Sometimes it is okay to say, you know that that policy doesn't work here. <laughs> and but you need to lean in and be more kind of explicit about why and what the plan is moving forward, so that the client is aware. And that is okay to change your mind. It is okay. But if it's coming from a place of people pleasing versus being like, I'm being flexible and I'm understanding and learning and growing here. And I've got, I I was taught something about this. This is awesome. You know, thank you for this gift. This is going to impact my future clients. Like what a, what a beautiful thing. Cause our clients are our teachers, but we get mired in the people pleasing and the trying to serve everyone instead. And we, and when we cut off from that internal wisdom and embodiment is when we run into problems. At the very beginning of this conversation, you were talking about clinicians being in, in environments where we're not being observed. So it's not like a medical residency. We don't, for many of us in private practice, we may or may not have the opportunity, particularly during the pandemic to be in case consultation. That's why we see these groups on Facebook. Um, of, you know, here's a hard question I have, because we, we need to have that consultation and that opportunity to work through these things. Um, but all the more reason that when we're faced with a, a values confrontation, a boundary issue, 
we can tense up because we can't be like, let me get a manager for you. <laughs> it's like, we are the manager. Like, we're <laughs> the ones consult. that are going to make the decision. <laughs> let me consult my parts for a moment. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, my joke as a private practitioner has been, um, you know, I, I make the choice occasionally to work on some holidays. It depends what holidays they are. And I have different reasons for doing so. Um, and it's, for me, it's a values alignment in a conversation with my family and with the client and, and what needs are met and things like that. It's not something that's done willy nilly. But the other part of it is like, well, let me ask my boss, you know, <laughs> I need to look in the mirror and go, is this okay? Is my boss exploiting me? Um, is it okay that I'm coming into the office from nine to 12 on that day to see a couple of clients? Um, and that I think I, I appreciate that you brought up that idea of self attunement, of taking the time to stop and ask ourselves if we are particularly if we are highly sensitive people to listen to that voice uh, that that is saying, I don't know about this. Yeah, what a beautiful gift to have that internal compass. And I, you know, I was thinking about one of my first lessons of this was out of school. I had a client that I'd seen in practicum and an internship and I was moving away and they had stopped coming in because of medical reasons and I didn't know. And then they came back and they're like, okay, I'm ready. And I, it was our final session. There is no time and there is no time to process or in the way I wanted to. And we, we have these ideals, these ways we want to work, and then we have to work within reality. And I could have forced it. I could have asked my employer, hey, can I stay on a few more weeks just so I can... But I was moving away. Like There was just nothing. And we are trying so hard to avoid the grief sometimes with this stuff. And I also think sometimes we are trying to fill a gap that is a systemic issue that cannot be um, carried alone by you as the individual clinician to fill. Can you speak more on that? I think there's a lot that is a that is a deep well that you've just pointed to. Can you speak more on that? Well, if we talk like, let's consider fees, right? If you're a private practice owner, more than likely you're opening a for-profit business and there's a structure to that in our economic system. And a nonprofit business is allowed to charge lower fees because their fee structure is such that it's funded by grants. And here we come out of working in these nonprofits, thinking that we should start the same. We shouldn't charge more than that, even though we don't have multi-million dollar grants to support us. And we have a system of privatized insurance. We are in capitalism. And who benefits is the insurance company, not typically the provider. And so we're trying to make things work for these clients when really the larger system needs to change. The insurance needs to do better. The policies need to to shift. And the fact is, is this is our mental health system that we have private and public. And here we have private providers trying to make up for public. Uh, you know, inequities. And while I believe in giving back, and but I don't believe in giving back out of being burdened. I believe in doing it in a way that is healthy and sustainable. And so I just see clinicians, you know, shifting their fee everywhere when the reality is they can't afford to do that. Their clients don't know that, but they feel bad. And so they move their fee everywhere and then they have a bigger issue all because 
there aren't enough clinicians to refer them to in the public sector or those they know they're not going to get the kind of care that they get with them. And it is a sad thing to grieve and say, like, I can't give my client what they need right now. I can sacrifice a whole lot. But in the long run, it's you can't scale that. You can't sustain it. And that is a system issue. And here we are trying to jiggle things around. If we're looking at mental health professionals as being part of medical, which effectively we are, you know, we're, we're in the business of healing, if you will. It's an interesting idea that, you know, my my dentist has never stayed late um, because something happened. I mean, I have a great dentist, so if she really needed to. She probably would. Um, but but the fees are what they are, and yes, there are differences and there are situations where flexibility may be required. But I see clinicians in mental health struggle with answering questions about boundaries that I don't necessarily think occur in other medical industries, that I don't think that it's happening in surgeons' offices. I don't think it's happening in ophthalmologists. I don't think it's happening for chiropractors. I don't think it's happening for dentists of these difficulties of like, well, you know, these, these, this client says, I have a new client, this client says they can only now be seen because they had a job change, you know, they can only be seen on Saturdays at 10. And I don't work on Saturdays. So I'm thinking of moving around and changing my kids soccer practice and da 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 da. It's an interesting idea, because I then I try to imagine that happening in other industries, like mm-hmm. other factions of medical and behavioral health. And it's fascinating, because I don't think that happens. <laughs> like we it, there's a frame. And so my dentist is open on Monday from, through Friday from 8.30 a.m. to whatever it is, 4.30 p.m., let's say. And if it's outside of those hours, then I know I need to go to XYZ or go to a different provider, um, whatever mm-hmm. the situation is. And yet for therapists, yes. I see people sometimes and, and, and I've ta- been tasked with like thinking through kind of the mental gymnastics myself where it's like, well, if I could just do the backflip this time and maybe for a month or two, and it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think too, the, the mental health system, we aren't, the public is not as educated. I think it's becoming more and more educated on how the system works because of the stigma culturally that we've had. I also think that uh, you don't see those issues because you have a different kind of staff structure that prote- protects the provider from making those decisions because they point. have a lot of people in front of them before a patient gets to them. So they don't, they may, if they were answering the phones, really struggle with what their front office have, but the front office uh, people are protecting them in a way. And because a lot of clinicians don't have that, that is something sometimes I recommend when clinicians are looking to expand. I'm like, sometimes you need a uh, a front front person yeah. before you hire a clinician because you're not going to be great at setting the boundaries. So you need someone else to do it. <laughs> so... I think that's a, a, an important point. One of the things that I'd like to do in this interview is outline for people who are struggling with setting boundaries about all of these things. You know, yes. And I, I want to go back to what you said earlier, too, about this. This starts informed consent starts with your website. Informed consent starts with when you answer the phone when a client calls. And my husband and I are both licensed marriage and family therapists. We're both in private practice. And absolutely we'll get calls over the weekend for new clients. Um, And we, as a rule, do not return new client calls over the weekend. Um, But those are 
all of those considerations are part of boundary setting and setting the frame. But so speak more about that. And then let's kind of go through a list of like, here, here's how you get to this idea of here are my boundaries and I feel secure with them. Yeah. So even from your marketing, you're talking about who you see. Um, that can eliminate calls of people that are not a good fit from the beginning. It saves you time, but it also saves that person time for them to get guided better to mm -hmm. who's the better fit. You stop wasting people's time as well. Um, and then talking about your fee and what your process is so that people really know if it works for them or not can save some time. Now, does that mean that they're going to read everything on your website? No, they're still going to call and say, what's your fee? And you'll be like, I put it on my website. You know how many times I get asked, like, what is your business school cost? It's everywhere, but that's okay. You know, people just sometimes are researchers and other people are not. And so, but it's just one of those steps of like the way you talk, the way you explain your process, when you talk about how you work, what's unique about you, what's the kind of transformations that you see in your clientele, that is, again, beginning that framework for this is what the therapeutic relationship looks like with me. Because I'm sure, Beth, that if someone saw you, it would be a different experience than when they saw me. And we really need to get clear on how to distinguish ourselves. And it's not in the comparison of the other, but really standing out in our uniqueness and being clear about, I know how I work, taking that feedback and outcome-informed treatment and putting it into our marketing can really help. And then that initial conversation, again, reiterating some things, being really clear, having the fee conversation, talking about the schedule, talking about your cancellation policy from the get-go, doing that along the way, following up, checking in. How is this working for you? Because sometimes people are like, I just need an appointment and they're not thinking long-term. And um, I had that come up a lot with some of the people I've coached, you know, they notice that there's a drop off after session four. They start seeing patterns and they can start better preparing people. Hey, around session six, you're going to get real uncomfortable. I remember telling my clients that like you say you're coming in for this. I just want you to know that oftentimes when people come in to see me, it opens up a lot more and you might be really surprised and you may want to run. But if you can stick with it and I, you know, I'm here for you usually about session 10, it starts to alleviate and you will start to feel settled. But no, it's going to be uncomfortable from session four to 10, typically. That really helps. As, as this conversation is unfolding, we're landing on more and more items that are really easy for us to overlook as part of informed consent and boundaries. Yeah. Um, and to your point about fee setting, I know for me as a consumer, I want to know a restaurant's hours if I call them and, and they don't tell me that they're closed every Monday, then I'm really looking forward to takeout on Monday <laughs> and I can't get it from there. Um, but so that encouragement for providers to sit with, here is what your fee is. How, do you generally take one month off during the summer? Clients yeah. need to know that. Um, do you work on the weekends? No. Are you out the door by 5 p.m. every day? And I think for many of us, there's been a real... Um, as you already mentioned, but there's been a real challenge about boundaries during the pandemic because of demand, because change in working hours, because of transitioning online. I mean, even that was a, a really interesting transition that I would see some clinicians that just said, this is what we're doing. We're going online. Um, I will do my best to support you. It's going to be a learning curve for all of us. and We're going to figure it out. 
And the client said, okay. And then I would hear of other practices where there was tons of pushback. And I'm so curious what was happening in those relationships or with that population, right? Like what were all of the unique factors that were contributing to practices that relatively smoothly went online when we needed to and others that didn't or chose not to? What were the considerations around that? Knowing that they're all different, but it's another example of boundaries. Mm-hmm. And also how we express those boundaries. I've been seeing, you know, with recent with the good faith estimate stuff coming mm-hmm. out. Some people like I'm just emailing it to my my uh, <clears throat> my clients. And I, I kind of take the stance that any time that there is a boundary that changes, it's important to have a conversation. It's just like, again, we go back to the dating analogy. But let's say you're dating someone and then all of a sudden they're like, I'm not texting anymore. And they and then you're like, you want to text them? Do I call you? What can I, why don't have the conversation of like, Hey, I don't like texting. Can we call? That's much different than just shooting them a text saying, Hey, please don't text me anymore. Just call me. Like, how do you want to, how do you want to establish having how you do change? And if you can lead by leaning in to the discomfort and really exploring what is that discomfort about? Um, that, that process, even like the the method at which we establish the boundaries and continue to have discussions about them is important. I've reflected myself as a parent about the concept of good enough parenting, which during a pandemic with two young children. <laughs> yeah, right. My, my partner and I had a great conversation the other day about the things that used to be really hard values. Now we go, ah. Um, yeah, <laughs> because we've had to respond flexibly to changing factors. Um, and and we can only maintain rigidity to certain ideals for so long before the system starts to break down when the when the uh, system changes. And I think that when we as clinicians change boundaries, because we need to, we are being the good enough therapist, we're being the good yeah. enough other because we're modeling for them. I can change these things. And I appreciate what you just said. I'm not going to hide behind a text message. I'm not going to hide behind an email. I'm going to have the hard conversation with you about raising my fees. And this is when it's going to happen. And you have plenty of advance notice. Let's talk about what this means for you. Let's talk about the value of therapy in your life and how this is affecting you financially. We're using ourselves as the object, sitting with being okay with that objectification to be the good enough other. Right. And please, you're going to make mistakes. And it's when we gloss over and deny that, that there there is a misattunement again. So for example, maybe you had a boundary. Uh, Hey, I've noticed our sessions keep running over. Own it. Own your part in it. You know, I notice I enjoy our time together so much. And I notice that at the time when we're supposed to be wrapping up, you don't feel closed up. And that concerns me. And so I keep going longer and that's not respectful of your time. And it's not respectful of my time and my other clients that I have scheduled, but I notice I'm not keeping up on it. And I have some ideas of how we could finish session on time, but I'd like to hear what your experience is too, because I'm wondering, are you feeling that way? That's what I'm picking up on. You know, that you don't feel ready to leave. And what is that about? Do we need to change the way we're doing our work together? Do our sessions really do need to be longer? Would a cue help? You know, like, again, owning your part and allowing and allowing a client as teacher and collaboration 
That's the flexibility piece. It's not saying, hey, we've gone over the past three weeks. That will not be happening anymore. <laughs> well, okay, but that's not what we're doing. We're saying like, hey, I, I, I've been messing up. In, and in an email, in an email, no less. We've been going over. <laughs> not again. Go yeah. So what, a, what another, again, we're missing opportunities for corrective experiences for our clients and maybe even for ourselves, because you can't tell me that in this work, we aren't healed as well. I really feel like that's, there's a reciprocal process there. And so um, to, to come at things out of love and kindness and, and, and really with the intention of serving our clients, but serving ourselves is part of serving our clients. Taking care of us is required in order for us to be there for our clients. If they want a good therapist, this is what it's going to take. I can only work these many days. I can only see this many clients. I need this much income in order to keep myself clothed, fed, prepared for retirement and vacation. And if I get sick, you know, all of it comes together. Like we've said, it's this opportunity to collaborate with a client or create a frame that maybe is different than what they're used to. Um, you know, if we're looking at a client that has been in historically um, codependent relationships, quote unquote, and how that happened and why that happened. And we're aware of that. And so then it's all the more difficult for us when it's 7.52 on a weeknight and they call us and we don't return calls at night. And then we hold the boundary until the next morning. But then our own awareness, then it's like, oh, I saw them call, but I'm not calling back. And like, and, and living in go, that tension, right? Yeah. We go through this whole process. And then I, and I've been there, I've had those experiences. And then the fascinating moment when you do call them, and they're like, no, I actually I called a friend and I was able to do this and da, 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 and you go, Oh, look at how self important I am. <laughs> like, like you said, it's like this healing process for ourselves mm -hmm. to appreciate our own stuff and how it comes yes. into the therapeutic process. Mm -hmm. For people listening, I can hear the potential for confusion because there's some of what you're saying that is, let's be flexible, let's be collaborative. And there's also some of what you're saying, which is, but we can't be flexible on that. Like know where your boundary <laughs> is about whether you work on the weekend or you know whatever it is. How, how do you encourage clinicians to set policies that are values aligned and what does that look like? I'm always open to learning and I'm always open to the possibility that I am wrong. So that's where that flexibility comes in. I'm willing to hear you. I'm willing to listen. And then I can go check them with my boundaries and say, where does this come from? Why do I have this boundary? You know, and decide if I want to change something or not. So a lot of my work is that when these questions come up, it's getting back to the why. Why do we have a weather policy? Why do we have a cancellation policy? Is it because everyone does it? No, <laughs> there's a reason behind it. And usually those questions come up because we haven't established the why. So I have clinicians start with like this alignment in terms of what they need their life to look like. We all have different circumstances. Some of us are caregivers. Some of us don't have the same privileges as others. And so what our business can, can look like is going to be different. So you look at your life and then say, where can the business fit in it? And that is what your life is, what kind of dictates the boundaries of the business at first, right? So if you, for example, I, you may not have like childcare, 
for, you know, so that means you're working evenings or vice versa. You don't have any, like you need to be home to pick up the kids by two. All right. So then your boundaries are, I can work between eight and two. Does that mean when the client comes to challenge the schedule that you move it around? Not when you know why, because you're like, well, no, I, I have these other things and that doesn't work for me. Right. So the life starts to shape that. And then it's also for you as a clinician, you have to look at your energy levels, your physical well-being and what you need. Some of us can go multiple sessions, depends on the type of work you do. Others of us need breaks and a lot of integration time between sessions. There's no right way. Again, it's listening to that embodied wisdom. All right. So we want to look at the why behind the hours you set about any of those decisions. So it's going to fit into your life. The business fits into your life. That life dictates some of the parameters around time. It dictates the parameters around fee. It dictates a lot of what you're deciding that you can and cannot handle in your business. And then there's also the factor of you as the clinician. You need to check like what you can handle depending on the type of work you do, the clients you see. You may be a clinician that has really long sessions or short sessions frequently. You can do lots back to back or you may need a lot of time for that integration in between sessions. That's going to dictate how many clients you can see. And then your life is saying, well, we need this kind of income. And then your business is saying, and yourself as a clinician saying, well, this is what I can do physically to provide equitable care, equitable that this first client gets the same care as the last client of the week. You know, and that's what forms these boundaries. So ask yourself, why? Why do I have a cancellation? Could it be because you have to financially plan in your practice? You can't just fit someone randomly in like a dental appointment because this is regular care and treatment. It's more kind of like a daycare model. I hate Miranda and I use this often, but, you know, they can only plan for so many kids. And you pay whether or not you go every time Mm -hmm. because they can't just ad hoc have random people stopping by. So it depends on your model of care, all of this. So anytime you're questioning it, come back to what does it mean for my life if I were to flex on this boundary? What What am I doing here? What is that influencing the therapeutic relationship as well? These are really deep questions. And I know, speaking for myself, um, when we look at the studies about female business owners, female business owners are are much less likely uh, to 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 make a lot of money. I mean, just to put it bluntly, that uh, women business owners uh, tend to do more charitable giving. So it's just like clearly clinical is about what I did when I set up the company. Um, And and I think part of part of this also needs to be that consideration of of the way that we as clinicians have been conditioned because of our culture, because of um, our bits, so to speak, because of our religion, because of our uh, ethnicity, because of our socioeconomic upbringing. All of these considerations they they come into play in a way that is really intense. And so women typically are not conditioned to be wealthy. You know, if we're looking at the automatic thoughts, if you see, and this is just a reality in our culture, if you see a woman driving a nice car, 
it's so common that we think, oh, what does their partner do, their male partner that bought them yes. that whatever car? And that these are automatic thoughts that come into play even with our own business practices where we feel guilty for making money, where we feel like we're taking more than our share because we are coming at this from the conditioning of whatever marginalized identities we may have. And that, that that's part of this consideration. Yeah. And it's interesting. I was talking to one of my clients who is uh, trans and they work with a lot of trans and non-binary clients. And they were saying, well, my clients can't afford therapy. And I said, you know, it's an ironic place to be that you it's uncomfortable when you are changing, not just the narrative of your own story, but for others in your marginalized community. So here you have a community who typically cannot afford this kind of therapy, and yet you're trying to create a business so that you yourself could afford this kind of therapy. Right. You are leading the charge in changing that legacy and narrative, and that is hard. That's a, that is a challenge, and it's why you need to be surrounded by other people who will lift that up. And to say, you know, are we bringing on narratives and myths um, that no longer serve? Is this coming from a conditioned place or can we change it? Um, can we challenge that kind of status quo? And I, I do think you have to approach it with an intersectional lens, but by golly, <laughs> I do not want a business to be another mechanism of oppression yes. for the business owner. And for me, it is a, a vehicle for them to get some liberation within it's this, the smaller system that they can control while we need larger systemic change to stop certain oppression and marginalization within their business. They can create a system that liberates them from some of that. And that's that own internal work of where are we bringing in those things that we're holding ourselves back and things like that. I have had occasions where someone with different privilege than I have, more privilege than I have, has disagreed with the boundaries that I've set as a private practitioner and then how that unfolds in the room and how there's this power dynamic where I'm observing that I as a woman am now feeling like I'm holding boundaries, but I'm breaking societal norms by doing so about a cancellation policy, about what hours are work, about whatever it is, and that this is really, really deep work that we're talking about you know, not just for the client when I as a woman hold boundaries with a man that's not necessarily accustomed to a woman, quote unquote, in power, in a power dynamic holding boundaries, but it's also a microcosm and macrocosm for me as a clinician. Um, I, I appreciate what you just said in the consideration of how are we playing out marginalization and um, these different ideals about what uh, you know, my people, whatever that is about what women or people of color or queer folk or whatever it is should be doing in society. And, and how do we sit with that? And also, can we reverse that for a second of what if I have a client who's from multiple marginalized communities? And what does it mean for me to enforce that? And am I talking about Absolutely. That dynamic. And this is one of the, this is why I take a lot of issue with uh, variable fee structure and random sliding scale assignment is that how do you know you're removing, you're removing bias and creating equity? You better have a plan because otherwise it's the most gregarious, the person that asks that gets the sliding scale fee. And the person who's been conditioned to never ask for anything is the one who may need it. 
And so this is why I feel like there are practices, not only therapeutic outcomes and all that great stuff, but we want and Equity is a factor in therapeutic outcomes. If all your clients sat in a room, would they be talking about the same kind of therapist, getting the same kind of treatment, paying the same kind of rates? And how would you feel about it? That if there was somebody who said, no, I pay half that, that you could say why and that you had a process and that you were really clear about that. I want people to feel confident about it. And again, this is an empowerment issue. This is that imposter syndrome. I'm making decisions and I don't know why. I'm doing these things because I felt compelled and it was, you know, get back to something that really does remove the bias in the relationship because there's already enough that you're going to have to deal with, that you're going to need to lean in on when there's that power dynamic and different marginalized groups you're working with. So you've got to do your best ahead of time. What a great way to care for our clients to say, I have thought of you long before and I have done my best to remove as much bias as I can here. And it's still going to come up, y'all. It's still going to come up. And and I think it is then leading into some really uncomfortable conversations. I have had some very uncomfortable conversations because of boundaries that are set, boundaries that are crossed, boundaries that need to change, whatever it is, both ways. And one of the things that I've thought about when I've worked with clients that have difficulty with setting boundaries for various reasons, because of traumatic experiences, because of upbringing, because of marginalized identity, all of these things, what's conditioned. One of the things I've talked about with clients is the idea of what I call making space. And that I think sometimes as clinicians, we feel really pressed to give an answer mm-hmm. right now. So yeah, a client no. says, hey, I can. I, I, things are really crazy right now. The only time I can see you is is going to be Saturday afternoon. And I know you don't work on Saturdays, but it would really mean a lot to me. And then are we as a with therapists okay with making space ourselves and saying, I I hear your request. Let me think about it. Let me work at, look at my schedule and I'm gonna get back to you by tomorrow at noon. Um, to give ourselves space that I think sometimes we feel like we have to make a decision right now. And in doing that, we don't consider these factors that, you know, it's later that night and we go, oh no, I didn't even think about blah, blah, blah. And that I for listening therapists, like it's okay for you to make space to give yourself time to really ask, what are my values about this? What is my why? And am I okay with setting this boundary or with with breaking this boundary right now? And what are the ramifications? And I will say, if you need to backtrack, backtrack. And if we can prevent backtracking, I think that's all the better, you know, because it's saying, I care about you. I want to, again, that's that flexibility of I'm taking it in. I need time to process so that I can give you a thoughtful response. I've, I've been, uh, certainly I've gotten requests from clients that I, I don't know the answer. And then I remind myself, it's okay for me to take a minute and take a beat to get consultation on this. Right. I think it's that rigidity. If you're just like so quick, what, what else, what nuances am I missing? And what emotional content is actually here that needs nurturance, you know, of like, man, I wish I could go to this wedding. And what would that be like, even though I know that I'm not going to of like this grief of like, we have this with some of our clients where I wish we had a different relationship, you know, there's so much. And 
When we are burnt out and pressed for time, we aren't giving ourselves the space to process this either, to give ourselves time to go to case consultation, to give ourselves time to really think through and prepare for session. And we're just going through churning and burning. Um, That's what we need to shift. And that's what you were taught. Well, that's what I was taught in county work of like, here's 120 clients, see them at least once a month. And, you know, if not, you can do more. You know, it's just like, okay, just appointment after appointment. And there was no space for this. And this is the beauty of having your own business is you get to create the model that really allows you to cultivate the kind of work and transformation that you really desire. And that takes time and listening and attunement. And I think there's something here, really check your energy. And maybe this is my whole Reiki self-talking since I do Reiki, but I think check what kind of emotional energy is driving a lot of the bending of things. And if there's any fear in there, that just means that's an invitation to really explore. Because when I know my why, I'm more likely to be able to set my boundary and say yes or no, and then also feel the multiple feelings without changing. Like, I feel sad that I can't see you on Saturday and that's the only time that works for you. You know, I feel sad and it still isn't going to work. So you can have, you can have more duplicity, I guess, in that sense. You and I could just keep talking on this because there's so <laughs> this is such an important topic and it, it it is so impactful for us as clinicians and how we carry ourselves in the room. And then, like you you said earlier, when we're misattuned even with our own values, the clients are going to feel that it's going to come up in the space between us. Um, and again, like if you have a client that is paying very little and you feel like realistically, you feel like they're paying too little. And then you notice that if you need to cancel one client this week because of a doctor's appointment, you're more likely to cancel them. That goes back to that idea of equitable care. Like we need to sit sit with these um, uncomfortable questions and realities of how this carries forward into our business practices and how it's impacting the client. Because if I, if I am more, more, more likely to cancel a client because they pay less, yeah, then how no. is that not going to impact outcomes? And you and you agreed to that payment. Right. How, how, oh, yes. So here's something I suggest for people listening. I encourage you to take some time, breathe, meditate, whatever you need to s- s- settle yourself. And I want you to reflect on your schedule for the week. How do you feel about it? Where is the resentment? Look at your bank account. How do you feel about it? Is there any kind of resentment? And anytime that there's this like, you're trying to defend your why, if you feel defensive, fearful, tired, angry, those are clues for you that you have an opportunity here to change things. And is everyone going to be supportive of it? Is everyone going to rally around you and be like, it's amazing. You only work daytime hours while they're all working night. No, but they don't have your life. They have different privileges and contexts. And then you do. And this is about embracing who you are and what you need in order to do this good work. And so letting those kind of trigger points guide you of where to get started in terms of cleaning house. And this is an ongoing, y'all. Like you will refine. You have a child. You become a caregiver. There's a death. There's a marriage. Good things, tough things. They're going to keep your business needs to be able to be malleable to shift to accommodate, again, those boundaries that life is giving it. And there are some unfortunate things that are urgent that you may have to change quickly. 
and that's okay. But you, if you, the more tuned you are with your business, you're tuned with parts of yourself. This will make it a lot easier. It's when we get in denial and we get defensive and we push it away that we start ourselves down a path of burnout. Thank you for this time, Kelly. I think it's it's been um, clarifying for me and hopefully helpful for listeners that it's okay to change and it's okay to make space. And my goodness, have we had factors thrown at us in the last few years that are just out of this world. Um, and, and it is ripe space for bending our boundaries and self-exploitation. Um, so thank you for all of the points that you've made. For our listeners that want to learn more about you and the work that you do, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, you can check us out at zenimi.com slash free. Uh, that's Z-Y-N-N-Y-M-E dot com slash free. Um, there's over, I don't know, 10 hours of free training there. Some of them are CE eligible, but just check out some things that can kind of hear some voices that are in support of you having good boundaries for the sake of your clients and for the sake of you, because we do need you, but not at the expense of like ruining your life. You're needed here. There's plenty of work to be done of healing in this world. You will never run out of clients, I promise. Um, But we want you to have a good life in the process too. Thank you so much, Kelly. I really appreciate you joining me today. Thank you. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.